This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And um, Dave? And I'm the Machine. I tried to think of something witty. Didn't come out. I'm in the jungle? No. Sweating? You're humid? Irish. You're, you're like Sisyphus pushing a boat up a hill is really what you are. <laughs> this is a podcast where a like sentient a machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film... Fitzcarraldo. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue this show since the machine you know, doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there, so it's fun. Now, before we get into this week's film, Dave, just a so couple convincing. of things we need to it's get fun. to. Yeah. <laughs> it's a jolly time. It's yeah, great. Uh, everybody loves it. One of two things have to happen. The first thing is that we, of course, need to advance our plot here. Mm-hmm. Plot. Our arcade center here seems to be woefully unattended it doesn't seem like anyone is coming in right we need to step up our marketing what's going on dave uh wait was i in charge of that uh that's what i thought were you supposed to hand out all those flyers last week is that still a thing yeah do they still use uh um... it's 1982 dave right of right, right. <laughs> what do you call that uh paintbrush glue shit whitewashing mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> go for the billboards yeah put it on yeah okay we'll do that do you have any do you have any whitewash well, I mean, Dave, I did grow up in Alberta, so all I have is whitewash for you. <laughs> teed that up. Hey, maybe that's a good segue into our movie today about whitewashing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. If, if things don't improve, we might have to sublease our space here, Dave, and get another tenant in here to pay us some, some money. But we'll talk about more on that well, in a moment. You have been planning uh, the bigger- some kind of plot yes uh i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> right, Dave. Right, off the cuff. it's not like i have it's, it's not like i have a detailed plan for the next 48 <laughs> weeks on how things are going to evolve <laughs> you do like a good spreadsheet the biggest thing dave i think that we do need to comment upon is the fact that this week the oscar nominations came out for the 93rd annual academy awards celebration in this year 2022 celebrating the movies of 2021 of course dave we have this year I think for the first time in quite a few years, a full 10 films that are nominated oh God, for Best Picture. Oh my God, that's how you start. Okay, you should keep the preamble in, just so people <laughs> understand why you started off that way. Uh, so a full 10. So let me read out to you the 10 Best Picture nominees, but then we'll really focus on the five directors, because that's really probably the five Best Picture nominees, really. So we have Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, oh my God. Dune, oh. King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, West Side Story. Those are the 10 nominees. Of those 10, how many have you actually seen? 
I've seen is Coda the one with the deaf family? Correct. It's on, on Apple, Apple TV, TV Plus. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I've seen Paid Coda. a record twenty-five million dollars at Sundance for Apple to buy that movie. I turned Don't Look Off after Don't Look Up after about fifteen minutes. That's a piece of shit. So that should not be on here. Dune we watched together. I thought that was great. And that's it. I haven't been able to see West Side Story yet, but I'm sure I'll like it. Mm. I don't know, best picture like it. I thought Nightmare Alley was poorly reviewed too. No, well, know, on the, I don't know. On it, the average. It, it didn't do very well at the box office. Let's put it that way. That's the one with Bradley Cooper, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Who's good in it? I mean, I don't know. It depends yeah, if you I like Guillermo del Toro. I think there's a little bit of pushback since he won for Shape of Water. Is there a lot of latex in this one too? Mm, yes. No. <laughs> But <laughs> you hesitated, so but, there must uh, be uh, at uh, least one suit. <laughs> one suit. There, there is someone called the geek in it, so uh, yeah. who likes to bite the heads off of chickens. Kate Blanchett is very hot in it. Let me just put put that out there. Kate Blanchett's the best. She's like mm-hmm. when she played Galadriel in uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. That is like who she is. Just kind of this separate entity. She's sort of like superhuman. So I have watched nine. Of these 10 Best Picture nominees, the only one I have not watched is King Richard because I had literally no desire to watch it. But now I'm going to have to just so I have an opinion. What do you mean? You can see him yelling at the Serena and Venus. I just a weird angle to do a biopic (laughs) on the Williams sisters by focusing on their dad. I don't know. I just think that's a weird angle into the... That's because you're assuming the biopic is about the Williams sisters. Well, I guess. It is called King Richard. Right. I'm sure there's irony in that title, because from what I remember, he's kind of a prick, but what do I know? I haven't seen it. Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to reserve judgment for the, that actual movie here. I agree with you with Don't Look Up. It is a very divisive movie. I did not like shit. it. Yeah, I watched the whole two and a half hours with my parents, actually. That was our Christmas movie that we watched. Oh, God. Together. How? And they enjoyed it. So you suffered with your... Oh, your parents actually thought it was funny. Yeah. I thought it was fucking brutal. There is okay. a, there is one recurring joke in it that I think is actually legitimately very, very funny. <laughs> and when Timothy Chalamet shows up like an hour and a half in, he does this one line reading that is so funny to me. And those are the only two laughs I had in that two and a half hour movie. <laughs> I I got through to the point where uh, Meryl Streep's Donald Trump impression Mm. and uh, Jonah Hill's coked out son, I just, it got so obnoxious. I looked at Helen and I was like, I don't think it's worth our time. For whatever reason, Adam McKay, this like late career Adam McKay thing of him doing like quote unquote serious movies or satires, he'll call them. Again, there is people that deeply love this movie and thought it's like super funny and super prescient. I always feel like it's talking down to the audience. That's yeah. just the tone I get. It's like, you're too so stupid trip. to recognize. I'm like, no, you're saying very obvious things. Like, don't well, tell me. he said me. that in a press interview, too. He basically said anyone who doesn't get is an idiot. Right. And, uh, just like, yeah. Yeah. It's, no, I get it. I get what you're saying. I just think it's not very good. I, I think the actual most egregious thing is like, if you want to give this a best picture nod in this 10 film field, fine. Even, yeah. Fine. Give it. A, it's not. No. Whatever. Fine. Okay. Yeah. I think it's egregious. It has a best editing nomination. Because I think the editing is actively bad. So, but let's talk about Dune for a second. That's the only other film you actually watched. So, why don't you tell me about Dune? I don't know. I love Dune. I like, I have a bias for uh, Denis Villeneuve because uh, I think it's the same way some people talk about Wong Kar Wai. It's just anything he shoots. Whoever his cinematographer is, mm-hmm. I just I just lay back and I'm like, yeah, give me more. 
It's hard as well for like abstract sci-fi to talk about performances because uh, these are not supposed to be human characters, so to speak. So I think everybody's good in it. I like the way it's put together. We joked. I mean, I'm a Dune apologist. I actually liked uh, David Lynch's. uh, Sure. You know, you're the one attempt, the one person. And I feel like this is so inspired by that, trying to basically make the film David Lynch wanted to make and not have to rush at the end because the production uh, studios are a bunch of assholes. There's a lot to that. It's hard for me because, you know, I don't believe in the Oscars. I think it's a fucking crock. And looking at this list, uh, it's a mess because it's, I can't even tell you what uh, what they're looking for. Well, it's, this is, I. The, so you're falling into this thing that so many people do. You honestly think that the Oscars is this like amorphous body that all thinks the same. And it's not. It's like 20 different branches trying to figure out what the best picture is from all of those different branches. Well, okay. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be a best picture? Well, okay. I mean, I'm not going to get into like the theory of what a best picture is. Honestly, well, it should be called favorite movie of the year is really what it should no, be. No, it should label. be called industry's selection of whoever paid the most money to be on a list. Um, if this was the late 90s, I would 100% agree with you because definitely Harvey Weinstein bullied his way into winning a bunch of best picture. Uh, <laughs> so you're saying there's no Harvey or... <laughs> Weinstein left? In no, the, in I'm the not industry. saying that. But the, the biggest <laughs> thing about the Oscars that is true over like the last five years i would say probably the last five years is that they have added so many people into the academy we're talking like thousands of people each year over the last five years and because of that i think that's why we are getting these i think and you have noticed weird lists which is like okay so we have like the safe like industry darling belfast with kenneth branagh like it's it's a, it's a movie that for and again this is me talking here it's fine it's fine. It's a fine crowd pleaser film. I don't think there's anything. It's a movie you're going to watch and forget about in like three months. Inoffensive. It's inoffensive, okay, yeah. but it's enjoyable when you watch it. You have Drive My Car, which is a three hour long Japanese film that is not broadly popular. Yeah. It's hard to find. It's like the completely two opposite things. I think you could throw in Jane Campion into here for The Power of the Dog. This is a thing that you cannot be watching on a second screen with. Like you have to engage with that movie because she is showing you and telling you things without being obvious about it that pay off two hours later. And like, oh, that's why that was focused on. And I think there's some deep things. I've been told, and I'm excited to do this, it gets better if you watch it a second time because everything kind of mm-hmm. fits into place even better because all of the things are there. You have Steven Spielberg, who is, again, big, brash, beautiful musical there again this is supposed to be that big crowd pleaser didn't do very well at the box office for sure but again gets to be the first person nominated in six different decades for a directing prize um and then finally you have your licorice pizza which again is your small low budget but american feature um for with is paul Tom anderson films considered low budget does he not get those kind of i mean he's made only bangers well let's find out uh, 40 million bucks. So I would call that a mid-budget film. Yeah. I was going to say 40 million bucks is not a small amount. So it's not super small, but it's not. If you got 40 million bucks out there and you need someone to give it to you, Kyle and I are starving for money. That's right. And, uh, we'll take a fraction of it. 1%. I'll take 1% of that. <laughs> That's right. Know? Now, normally this is not always true. Uh, but normally like those five that I just ran through because they have the best directors attached to them mm-hmm. are probably your front runners for winning best picture i predicted 
months ago that Belfast was going to walk away with this and become the best film. Because again, it's inoffensive. I've never even heard of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a black and white. Uh, I've seen the picture on iTunes rental and I skipped by it because I didn't want to rent it. But I will also say the power of the dog has been kind of steamrolling here recently. So yeah, it, people have been talking about that one a lot. So yeah. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm up in the air with what I think is going to happen. Uh, but to, sorry, to finish up in our conversation, before we go to that and then we can move on with the rest of this episode i think because we've been adding in so many different people into the academy yeah you're getting this fracture where back in the 90s it was like it was very obvious what like the oscar movie was going to be and here in the early 2000s it was like small movie no one has ever heard of <laughs> that's what's going to win best picture and now we're getting into this weird thing where a lot more like uh non-english films are getting nominated for best picture more like avant-garde we'll call them or things that are pushing things forward are getting nominated while also still having that older demographic that's bringing in your belfasts and your west side stories to be nominated as well so i think you're seeing this weird academy struggle with itself like what is our identity because you have a super young people and super old people fighting for what they want their best picture winners to be i just like the gold statues you know, but that's and what's surprising to me. I don't think the Oscars necessarily need an identity. That was what made it even worse in the '90s. Because yeah, you could you could easily guess what would be nominated, what would win. But you know, not to pick too much up, um, not to pick on this movie too much. But Don't Look Up was not only something I hated, but this is something that split everybody who watched Correct. it. Correct. Yeah, critics did not like that movie. Yeah. So you're talking about pooling allegedly thousands of new balloters for the Oscars and somehow out of the 200, I mean, it's COVID still. So not a lot of movies are actually seeing the correct release or the planned release dates and the- Right, but they're, they're gonna all get screeners for this. So they'll probably have watched yeah. them at home. But here's the thing, like that movie should not be anywhere near any list, whether you liked it or not. I mean, we're supposed to be the Oscars talking about the so-called 10 best, fi 10 best films mm -hmm. released in a year. I would like someone to build a defense of what about this movie made it the best. If you liked it, it's one thing. There's lots of movies people like that I hate. That's fine. But it's being, it will always be now an Oscar nominated film. Yeah. What a fucking joke. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with any of that. I, three of my favorite films of the, of the last year are nominated for best picture. So I think that this is a fairly decent list outside of don't look up. There's nothing that is so egregious. I'm like, I cannot believe this got nominated, even though there's a few of here, I would put Coda into this. I would put, um, yeah, a Belfast into this, which is like, they're fine. They're fine. Yeah. Like, but I'm not going to be raving about them to other people either. We watched Coda. I mean, I side watched it. Helen really liked it, but is that an Oscar winning movie? I don't know. Well, let me ask you a quick, a secondary question, Kyle. Yeah. Is there a movie you saw that should be on here? That was a big miss. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar was my like outside no hope, way, no. but it was never going to be. <laughs> like, uh, it was what, never what ever going what to else? be. Is there is there no other good movie? Uh, Am I the outsider because I don't watch? Not really. I like I, nothing that I I I was sort of hoping. But even I wouldn't have probably nominated for Best Picture, so I don't even know why I'm saying this. The only other one I was going to say was like Tick, Tick, Boom, I thought might have an outside chance of getting yeah, I've been hearing Best a Picture. Lot of, of I still haven't watched that. I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad Andrew Garfield got a nomination for Best Actor, and I hope he wins. I'm not 100% sure he will, but I would be over the moon if he did. Is uh, Macbeth a miss here? Macbeth is great. I really, really like that Macbeth movie, but it is 
I, I would side with some of the people who believe it is more style over substance in a, in a way it's, it's uh, production design is phenomenal. Like yeah. every frame is a painting and that type that of thing. Spider-Man no way home. Well, that was the other one. A lot of people thought Spider-Man might <laughs> actually get a nomination for best, oh, for best on. picture. Uh, I didn't Marvel. see it happening. I mean, but I Black Panther it. got a best picture nomination. So I Did mean, it? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that Yeah, when it was, mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's an interesting list. I'm excited to go and watch it. I think the only other big news here is that your arch nemesis, Lin-Manuel Miranda, is probably going to get his EGOT this year for getting best original song. I'm guessing that's yeah. probably what's going to happen. But Probably. My problem with Lin-Manuel is not about his writing talent mm-hmm. or his music menship or musical mm-hmm. uh, capabilities. I just don't like watching him act and uh, that is very personal and unfortunate. But like I was watching Hamilton, he's the only person that I don't want to see on screen. Mm. The rest of the cast is incredible. I don't mind the sort of frenetic way he writes music. And like, it sounds all the same to me, all of his musicals. But even Encanto, as soon as it, the thing lights up, you're like, if I didn't know, this is definitely right. written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. So I don't hate him as a human being. I just don't like him as an actor. And I think, I think that's a fair opinion. <laughs> for me i'll be watching of course you will in the sort of ceremony when is it it's march i will something. not because i have self-respect march 27th but, uh, so on march 27th i will be watching the ceremony <laughs> and cheering along getting oh all my God. predictions wrong probably but. just just being drunk and assuming you didn't forget anything but i'm sure it'll go well for you Jane Campion, first woman to be nominated twice in the directing category, which is egregious, but... Uh, yeah, that's the first woman to get two, two nominations. Yeah. Wow. Your uh, great academy is uh, really banging it out there, because of course there's been no uh, female directing worth nominating for the last 100 years, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes well, sense. Well, for a while they weren't able to direct, so I mean, there's part of that. So. <laughs> Do you think Kristen Stewart will win for Diana? That got well, a lot of press. I thought press. she was the front runner, but she has not been winning in any of the other award ceremonies. So that usually means all oh, the no. precursors. Oh, okay. Who um, won the pre? Was it Olivia Coleman winning all the? Because I heard Nicole Kim. I heard being Ricardo sucks. Yeah, but they like the performances. I don't know. I kind of think Kristen Stewart is going to eke it out though at the Oscars. Even that, I, that would be my prediction at this it's point. It's interesting with her. Like I don't know. I just don't understand her i tried to watch maybe i'm only watching her dumb movies i i need a maybe a list of roles she's taking more seriously than twinkly vampires and uh, yeah a shit remake of charlie's angels but <laughs> oh i guess that's the other thing when with her and Ariane debose this is the first time in 20 years two out queer people have been nominated for oh, acting awards queer? so i didn't know that yeah i don't follow Boy, what a conversation about those Oscars. I guess we should move on yeah. to talking about something else, Dave. It's weird. It's like uh, our voices sound a little bit different, um, but you know, I'm sure that's natural. It's not like we that's right. overdubbed it. I think we need to talk a little bit about our history with this film and this filmmaker. Specifically, we need to delve in a little bit about Werner Herzog. So what is your history with Werner Herzog? Uh, yeah, I don't really have a history with him. I've never met him. I think everybody knows Werner Herzog because he's such an imposing human being. There's just something scary oh, about him. It's, it's weird that you say that. I actually find him not imposing at all. No. <laughs> like not even a little bit. I characterize him with his portrayal in The Mandalorian. There's something about yes. him that seems so German, but uh, I couldn't tell you. I like, mean, uh, To I'm be looking- fair, he would, he would kill Baby Yoda. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm trying to think about the films he's made. I mean, I don't know if I've seen too many of them. Hold on. Let me look mm -hmm. at his... He definitely goes between fiction filmmaking and documentary, documentary yeah. quite a bit. I would say that probably outside of this movie we're going to be talking about here today, his most like high-profile one among cinephiles is Aguera, Wrath of God. Which I don't think I've seen. And Nosferatu. I believe that one is on Criterion at the moment, if you want to go and watch that one. From his documentary work, at least, I guess, in the circles I go in, Grizzly Man would be the big documentary so most people would know him from. It's interesting. I and mean, this is my, I guess, my intuition is I don't think I've ever seen a movie he's made, but I know hmm. who he is. I want that kind of power someday. He was definitely a favorite of Roger Ebert's for, for many years. He was a, Roger Ebert championed him quite a bit in his early years. He's done film criticism. He goes on panels. He is a... Everyone knows his voice. He has been parodied and that kind of thing. I mean, just reading a quote from him, I, yeah. I would say that, you know, the projection of reality versus what is real right. itself. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Pretty I interesting. think definitely what he, most more of his negative critics would say is that he really isn't that much of like, quote unquote, like a formalist, meaning like he doesn't care about perfect symmetry or setting up the camera in the right spot. He's much more of like the story is important. This is what I want to communicate. But the actual, like, using the camera as a tool to tell that story isn't the most important thing to him. Mm, right. What he will push back on is that, yes, every artist has a point of view. And the point of view is important. Because one of the two stories that I love of Werner Herzog make him this, like, mythical, larger-than-life personality. I forget where, I, I want to say it was Cannes or it was some film festival. And he was not on the panel, but I think he was in the audience. And it was a bunch of people talking about the role of documentarian while making a documentary mm. and the people up on the stage were mentioning how true documentarians should not infuse their own point of view and their own personality into their films it should be just a document it's and he very much disagrees with that wow, it's a colonial perspective for sure and so he gets up and says like absolutely not that is not the role of a documentary a documentary is a point of view you can be artistic with it and he got booed <laughs> He got booed out of the room. A bunch of white And so people, all he did was I'm like, sure. yeah. yeah, it was like, like, happy new year's losers. And he like <laughs> walked off. <laughs> it's just, I just love well, just, the recording of that. It's so funny. I mean, I don't know. Not to argue on that point because I, I don't know much about it, but I hate, hmm. like photography has this problem too with this idea that the camera is passive and shows mm -hmm. you something about reality and it's completely the opposite. And we've grown up, you and I, and people of our generation, like even critically sort of championed things like National Geographic. You know, we only know about Africa sure. because of these white people that went and took pictures of tribes in Africa. And the whole thing's bullshit. So um, yeah, I'm with Herzog on this. It's not that they yeah. don't have value in and of themselves, but they are not real. So yeah, I guess the nature of documentary films is kind of weird. Is that why they're so boring? Yeah. Well, I think you're watching the wrong documentaries if you think documentaries are <laughs> yeah, boring. Yeah, there's but okay. a lot of good ones, but just, you know, I gotta pick up the That's a conversation for another day. Yeah. The other story that I love of Werner Herzog that I know him from, there is a semi-viral video that came out, I don't know, a few years ago. It's actually from an interview, I think from the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, of this guy interviewing Herzog in, a, in Los Angeles. 
and he's shot on camera. Oh, yeah. That was during the press of Grizzly Men. Yeah, a stray bullet comes in and hits him. And he's like, I was just shot. <laughs> I was shot. <laughs> and it's just like, what is happening? It's a really weird video. I've this seen is a little flesh wound. Like, it doesn't, like, actually, it doesn't, like, almost kill him or anything. But Yeah, I just read about an air rifle by a fan. I think mm -hmm. he quipped that he only attracts crazy people as his fans or something like that. But I haven't seen the video. I, I just read about it. My aim was off that day. How about this movie, Dave? Have you ever heard of the movie Fitzcarraldo before? No. Never. I, it doesn't even sound real. Fitzcarraldo. What language is that? We'll get into that. <laughs> I have no idea what this movie is about, but I do know it by name because mm. I have watched other things that have referenced it before. I know this. I use this, don't do this fucking Simpsons. episode. Yeah, don't but do it's this. a Simpsons reference. There's a Simpsons oh reference God. to this movie oh my God. in one of its early seasons and it flew over my head. I, just, I didn't know what they were talking about when they mentioned this is like Fitzcarraldo. And then people laugh. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand the reference. Who laughed? Do people know about this movie? Back in the early 90s, probably. It was only 10 years old at that point. So I don't, I don't know if anybody saw this film. I guess you'll tell me about that either uh, as well. Until we start watching it here today, I do not know what this movie is about. So that's going to be a nice surprise for me yeah. to find out all this, all this talk. So I guess we might as well go and watch this movie here. Sure, today. sure. And yeah. Then, so we'll go thank some sponsors. Leave you lovely people here. Enjoy some of the snacks. I laid out. A succinct. We just need a uh, two hours and forty eight minutes, and we'll be back. <laughs> That's we right. Just, yeah, just and we're wait. back, yeah. and we'll be right back to talk about Fitzcarraldo. Are you much of a, a sailor, Dave? Like, do you like boating? <laughs> I I feel like the kind. I feel like I need to understand why you're asking me this question before I answer it. Uh, I'm gonna go. Oh, no, curious. Yeah, no. Uh, I get seasick on uh, car ferries. Me too. Yeah. Didn't used to be that way, but something's wrong with my inner ear. Did I tell you that I had vertigo like five years ago? Like on DVD or <laughs> like the actual affliction? No, I spent like three months. I was sick. Yeah, I couldn't stand up oh, properly. Boy. Yeah, it was weird. I had to do all these things with my ear. I've been sick a long time. That sucks. Eat more fruit, people. If you're listening to this, <laughs> is take that care what it of is? <laughs> no, not enough vitamin C. Uh, no, it's not. I just feel like yeah. you're feeling dizzy. He's like, give me an apple because <laughs> you fall over <laughs> to the ground. What is this, red delicious? <laughs> it's not going to make me feel better. It's garbage. It's not even a fruit. When I go sailing, I just dress like Donald Duck. Wow. Without pants. No pants. So, you know. Yeah, no, I got that. Well, Kyle Davis <laughs> the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. They love it when we talk about this stuff. Locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. You know, this week, Dave, I get to talk to you about Rumi. Mm, it's been a while. You know, in Calgary right now, we are going through something called a Chinook, this like um, I don't know, weather event that happens when this warm air passes over top of the mountains and, and down into our city so that when it goes from minus 14 degrees Celsius up to plus six degrees in one day, it's, that's what happens. It's not a Chinook. It's the end of times, Kyle. <laughs> we, well, that's you. We're all going to die. But with warmer weather comes yard work. Ooh. Dave, you notice the stuff that you have left out on the lawn that was covered with snow Don't previously, the tricycles. Yeah. The cigar butts. No, we have a And there's lots of this type of yard work you have to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. You want to prune your trees and shrubs, possibly clean your eaves troughs. That's a Canadian word. Mm. Replace those drafty windows you noticed over the winter. Or you can call Rumi to take care of all your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance while you fire up the barbecue and relax. Visit Rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or... You can pick up your telephone Ooh. and dial 
844-777-7864 and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard so all you have to do is enjoy it. Serious question. Yes. Do you think if you use the word telephone with anyone younger than, let's say, 16, they will think that it's a separate device than their smartphone? Because like the concept of tele has disappeared, hasn't it? Right? We don't even call them television. Well, they'll probably just say phone. They're probably not going to say, they're not going to say, pick up my smartphone. They're going to just say, give me my phone. Like, why don't they even call it phones anymore? It's like not their yeah, primary purpose. They barely use that for yeah. that purpose. Anyways. Uh... Hey, what do you have for me this week, Dave? <laughs> Resident over 40-year-old? Asshole. So, we are sponsored or supported, really, by the Alberta Podcast Network. And this week, they've asked us to talk about some of our partners. Are they siblings? I don't know. Relations? One of those podcasts is something called The Breakfast Dish. And frankly, Kyle... Even though, ironically, I make podcasts, or at least this one now, I have no idea what other podcasts are about. So maybe I'll just click play here and have mm -hmm. them tell us because I, I have nothing to say. Yeah. There's some fetish site for that somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> this is not a conversation a that I thought I would no, be having with my mother on the breakfast Let's not dish. talk about fetish It's too late. It's in. I'm not, I'm not editing it. I've been operating under the misguided notion that Scooby-Doo was a piece of shit. When I first met Daddy, oh, he was trying to man, convince one second. me. I'm going to put a nix on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will stand for Mommy. I will not stand for Dad. <laughs> Do you guys ignore your other guests for this long a period? We have now clearly divided the lines of this podcast. <laughs> Two perverts and me and Karen. <laughs> uh, speaking of cocaine, we'd like to thank our supporters. Hi, I'm Griffin. Hi, I'm Griffin's mommy, Karen. Okay, well, I'm the Bubby, and we host The Breakfast Dish on the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. Karen, what do we what do we friggin' do? What do we friggin' do? We friggin' celebrate and highlight and amplify all the online art that is happening. If it's socially distanced, if it's art you can see online, I want to walk through your gallery virtually. I want to hear your music. I want to watch your play. You can hear about it on The Breakfast Dish. All right, frankly, that was too much cursing. And also, you can find The Breakfast Dish anywhere you get your podcasts or you can head to albertapodcastnetwork.com watch your language this has been the breakfast dish all right well dave we're back we've watched this epic film called fitzcarraldo mm -hmm. i am very curious to know what did you think about this film and actually before you jump into it <laughs> Maybe something that we can start doing. Okay. Do you think you could give a very succinct explanation of what this film is just about plot-wise? Like, what actually happens in this movie? Oh, a, a crazy German lunatic who's pretending to be Irish decides that he's going to build an opera house by dragging a giant boat mm -hmm. and subjugating Aboriginal people to his will. And in this the is end, in uh, Brazil. He's in Brazil no, to, Peru. to do this. Or some, sorry, yes, you're correct. Racist. In, in Peru. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, uh, they filmed in Brazil, but they're actually right. supposed to be in Peru. Um, yeah, I think that's really it. He wears white suits. Uh, go figure. But the, the big set piece is that to get to this rubber, untapped rubber reserve right. so that he can help fund the creation of his opera house, he makes this scheme where he's actually going to travel between two rivers, but overland. Yeah, I mean... For a bunch <laughs> of different plot reasons. But So he has to drag this boat overland. That's the big thing that they're going up to. Yeah, I guess that's the, the crux of the uh, climax of the film. No, the mm -hmm. purpose, the uh, the metaphor in the film 
is this uh, pulling the boat over? But I guess the plot would be just a man who loves opera, wants to make an opera house in South America and needs to fund it by uh, trees, rubber. He likes likes rubbers. Yeah. A man who needs extra rubbers. He needs to protect himself by getting him some rubbers. So you can build an opera house. Dave, we talked all about opera last week with Yes, Giorgio. So no, I'm we talked about a terrible movie last week that had an opera singer in it. So now is a good time. Let's go into it. What did you think about this movie, Fitzcarraldo? It was, it was interesting. I, I think that there's an epic quality to it, but it is also a little bit unsettling and overlong. Kind of felt confused by the general idea of it. it. Kind of like we just had trouble describing the plot. I found myself a lot of times just wondering why the acting, you know, so all of the production pieces are kind of interesting to me. I didn't know who any of these people were. And throughout mm. the film, I kept thinking this lead actor is insane. And it turns out he was. He and is. So it was kind of hard to empathize with someone who looks literally like a serial killer. So it was hard for me to just get involved with the narrative. I'm like, I was watching it, you know, it took me a little while to understand why this beautiful woman is even like his girlfriend slash funder slash high society. I mean, the whole thing was very awkward. She she runs a brothel, it turns out. The brothel. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, the opening scene that he's rowed a boat for two days to go see an opera, it just, as soon as he said that, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I can barely row for an hour. Who can row for two days? It just seems so, everything's so extreme. I think this is a Herzog thing, but everything's so extreme. But I, you know, to the movie's credit, by the end, I was uh, thoroughly engaged with this idea of both the, the white savior, this mythological idea of the, you know, white god coming in a boat to, to lead the indigenous people to paradise, which is a fascinating comment mm-hmm. on the failure of European colonialism. And then this, yeah, Sisyph- what would you say, Sisyphean? Sisyphean. Sisyphean uh, endeavor of pulling a giant boat over a mountain. Uh, when they start that whole process, like when he shows the map, how he's going to secure this un- unattainable land, I was like, oh, that's genius. And then when he when he gets to the point where he's like, we're going to pull this giant boat over, I'm like, I have to watch it because that's the yeah. dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so... I will say in response, I end up really enjoying this movie. I think I have discovered, the older I get, that there is a type of film that I find supremely compelling, which is the... White people taking advantage of Native well, people. Well, <laughs> no, not, not, well, not quite that, but more so like someone who so gets unfair. this like wild idea mm. and that is their own undoing at the same time. Like they just become so manic and like so like laser focused on this there's some other ones in this genre that i was thinking of like there's citizen kane lawrence of arabia there will be blood all of those to certain degrees are this person being like i am going to get this done and i'm going to do it and then either they lose their humanity or they lose their lives or they lose everything around them <laughs> they keep going it's like no i have to get this thing and that's what i found compelling about this then why don't you like me because i have seen aguera the other Werner herzog movie that also takes place in south america that also is about going down a river and that is very blatantly about colonialism i think i like that movie better than this one and i agree with you that this does feel over long in places like there are moments where it's like we really are just watching a boat inch up <laughs> the hill yeah like I'm, I'm still interested to see where this goes but we could probably have like compressed this down a little bit i was just quickly you know i mean 
for me, the mountain part wasn't what's overlong. It was the boat sequences. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you could stretch the idea of pulling a boat over a mountain. You know, that's going to be hard sure. work. But yeah, I think I think really this is part and parcel of the whole Herzog thing. He is interested in exploring this character, this idea, his his mission, his mania. But I wouldn't say that this film is like beautiful to look at or any like amazing shots or anything like that. Like there's there's a visceralness to it. And I think that that is part of what I enjoy about it. But for those of who love cinema for the beauty that it can evoke, that this is not really that movie, I don't think. But Klaus Kinski is an interesting choice to bring in. We'll talk about some of the casting problems that happen with this movie. I kind of fundamentally don't understand why when they cast Klaus that they just didn't change the fact that he's Irish. Like, it doesn't really make sense that he's an Irish man because he doesn't have an Irish accent. He's clearly not an Irish person. So just make him a German. It's fine. Just call him, he's a German. He's he's Fritz something and he's Fritz Corraldo or something like that. Like, you can make this work. <laughs> There's a lot that kind of pulled me through this narrative, but I, I did keep, I felt caught in between like watching the movie and like in the back of my mind, Thinking about like, how did they make this movie? Mm. Like, I there was always these keep flashing backs and forth. It's like, boy, that looks really dangerous. What they're doing was it actually dangerous, or, did, or is it just a really good optical trick? Turns out it was actually really dangerous, yeah. and they shouldn't have been doing what they were doing. And then there's like, again, the subjugation of the native peoples here, which is I think is part of the point. His mania is making it so that he is doesn't really care. He's just trying to get to this place so he can get this rubber so he can make this opera house which i just love the fact that that is what he wants to do is build this opera house that nobody cares about no one is even going to go to this opera house if he builds it where he wants to build it and he's so driven that by the end of it all he can do is literally play an opera record on a boat as it goes past a bunch of natives for who for himself like that's the only person that's enjoying what's going on at the at the end of the movie so again i kind of like these narratives where it's just someone who is just so filled with like this mission in their life that it consumes them and it destroys them at the same time. I feel a little disappointed by the ending because I agree with you. I think that these tragic, almost moralizing tales of the danger of obsessive compulsive disorder uh, are fascinating because they can reflect parts of our own lives where we have to question, why do we watch 52 movies a year and talk about it on a podcast? (laughs) Right. That's our Fitzcarraldo. <laughs> but you know what I didn't like about this? So I, I liked how in mm-hmm. the buildup, you can see that he's slowly, I mean, not even slowly, but he's lost his sanity, that he's willfully taking advantage of everybody around him, that he's controlling and broken, he's burning all his bridges. But the part at the end, which I didn't like, I mean, he fails in one sense, but he doesn't die. And then all of the uh, sort of rich white people show up at the beachhead and start clapping as he's standing mm-hmm. there listening to this operatic record. I didn't like that at the end it seemed to celebrate him, even though right. he had basically killed everybody around him and lost. I mean, he had to sell the boat, he had to like give everything up, but then he got this moment of triumph with his hands on his hip. I mean, he looks absurd. So, it's not necessarily trying to make him a superhero, but it felt a little short for me at the end. Spoiler alert. I want to be very clear that like at the end of this episode, when we rate it, and my review that I'm talking about is, I'm just talking about this movie. There is a documentary that was made called Burden of Dreams that is about the making of this movie, also released in 1982. And I almost cannot separate them. After I watched that documentary here this week, 
it's like impossible not to see, view this movie almost as being Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Like he is so laser focused. I'm going to get this done. I don't care how I get this done. And he's paying off people and getting into wars with some of the native population and people are dying or getting injured on this film set. And he's like, no, I'm going to make this happen. And even if it takes him four and a half years to make this movie, I'm going to, I'm going to will this into existence even when any sane person would have been like, let's just, let's stop. <laughs> let's like, we don't need to do this anymore. It's, it's a weird thing this, this movie has where it's like both a movie about, yeah, this man who's obsessed with, with doing this thing that seems ridiculous while also being made by a man who's obsessed by making something that's ridiculous. It's a really weird thing that's going on here. We have that idea of art and life imitating each other. I mean, only... Mm -hmm. This is art imitating life, imitating art. Like, yeah. that's what it is. It's weird. Only <laughs> like a person... Snake eating its own tail. Yeah, only a person capable of being this insane would ever try to make a movie about people who are this insane. Again, I, I don't know much about Werner Herzog before we started doing the background reading on this uh, episode, but I am not surprised, for example, A, that he's like this, and B, there's that uh, documentary, uh, Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe, right? Uh, have you heard about that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so he, yeah. He bets a director who he keeps, uh, like a friend, I suppose, or compatriot, who keeps failing at making this movie. And he's like, if you ever make it, I'll eat my shoe. The guy finally makes it, and he actually eats his shoe. So, uh, he's nuts, right? There's something... I mean, nuts is unfair because it, it has a negative connotation, but he is very severe. There's something about him that he will just go eccentric, and Eccentric, Dave. He's eccentric. Yeah, he's eccentric. <laughs> uh, and he has a very interesting and uh, traumatic life growing up. It's fascinating. Very weird dude. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, he's German, so we expect that. <laughs> <laughs> Who's racist now? In Canada, because of our Truth and Reconciliation Committee on the way that we have treated our own native population, we do have something called land acknowledgements that we do. Now, there's debate about whether that does actually anything at all, but regardless, there is something we do for like a lot of live performances that happen here in the city. We'll do a land acknowledgement. This movie starts with one. It, it literally says, like, we filmed on these locations, which, which were housed by these people, and we thank them for allowing us the opportunity to film on it. I thought that was just really interesting to do back in 1982. It is surprising. I think this is a broad generalization, but I feel like, particularly in Germany, with uh, people around Werner Herzog's age and slightly younger who are coming a generation after the, the Nazis, mm -hmm. essentially, there's a greater sensitivity about the relationship you know, class or race or, or country, sure. nation, nation, national identities. It should be also be, in case it's not obvious, but the Berlin Wall would still have been up at this time. That's right. So, like, there would still have been East and West Germany. So, I think uh, the other thing, too, is, um, you know, I find we've been finding with European f films that are outside the purview of HUAC, there are different uh, world perspectives, right? It's not just a single... Line. I mean, even in America, if you make a film noir or horror film, whatever, there's sort of a single philosophy that undermi uh, undermines, but underpins everything, the American mm. idealism, whether you're for or against it. But there's something about European films that uh, supersedes that, right? And I don't know if this is the production company or Werner Herzog, or maybe as a you know reflection after starting essentially a small scale mm -hmm. uh, uh, skirmish with the uh, indigenous people there. Who knows what the reality is? But I too was kind of uh, interested. I mean, it's not even like a place card. You know, now they put place cards in mm -hmm. reissues because they're like, oh well, we have to apologize for this stupid shit we did. You know, forty years ago, this looked like by the quality of the card that this was originally meant to be there. So. Um, 
it's yeah. nice. It's nice to see that once in a while. I don't expect you to know this. Are you familiar at all? Do you remember the Apple Think Different ad campaign? No. I don't know. If you bring it up, maybe I'll remember. You probably might. I mean, there's this somewhat famous commercial that Apple made after Steve Jobs came back to the company showing all these like famous people from from world history right you have you had Gandhi and like Charlie Chaplin oh. and Jim Henson and Alfred Hitchcock and all all these people Picasso's in there painting a bull and essentially it ends with like because those who think they can change the world often do and while some may see them as the crazy ones we see genius because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So think different, like buy an apple. <laughs> Consumerism, yay. But that's all I could think about almost when I was watching this movie, because there's even this quote that Fitzcarraldo does, where the one like uh, really rich guy in town goes like, hey, we're all sportsmen here. And he's like, no, only one of us is. I will move a mountain, right? Like he is so committed to this goal that, yeah, he basically, he does. He accomplishes exactly what he sets out to do. Is that good? I don't know, <laughs> like that's going to be uh, for the other person to decide, but definitely everyone said that it was impossible and he made it happen. Mm. You know, the broader sociological impact of these cultural identities is, you know, it's its own study, right? Uh, I don't know what mm -hmm. title it falls under, but, uh, you know, they have all these adages, right? Like, um, what is it? History is written by the victim, you know, all, all that stuff. I can't right. remember how that phrase actually goes actually like we started at the beginning with the quick little uh, discussion about documentaries you know steve jobs when he was successful at apple is considered a visionary and now sure. posthumously we realize he's fucking insane and so um <laughs> yeah. you know someone who kills himself by eating fruit because he thinks it will cure his cancer is the same guy that revolutionized uh computing and from a marketing perspective anyways i mean the guy's not even a computer engineer so what is it that we worship it's fascinating right well i think that i think that's a really fascinating conversation as far as yeah success goes you're right there's the same person the same person who revolutionized who revolutionized the home computing industry is also the person who thought that eating apples was going to cure cancer there's the same person and it's like the uh, but if he had like flopped and failed at apple when he came back hey yeah, he looked like as a loony his entire life looked like this weirdo but because he had success it was like oh, no 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 he was he's we can revere him and i think that's the same thing here in this movie almost like if he had if he had gotten that rubber and came back oh, he's amazing he's like the most amazing person in the world but if he fails and stuff like that oh he's a loony and he's he's a weirdo and no one should like him but he's the same person either way well we just recently watched uh that movie about Mishima, we've talked about. Right. Yeah, I mean, what a great movie. We talked about so, like a lot of these actors and directors that either burn out really early or live too long that their legacies tarnished. This idea of how you're remembered and what your exploits amount to is kind of a should be its own podcast. It's it's weird to think about, you know, even within the smaller micro uh, microcosm. I mean, not famous people, but if you look at you know, our parents, and if you look at how they might have been looked at when they were 40, 60, or 80, or 20, because they're all in different stages of their lives, accomplishing different things. The way you tell that story would vastly differ. It differs if you're an 18-year-old telling the story of a 70-year-old versus a 70-year-old reflecting on their own life in its entirety. Because mm -hmm. I can tell you for myself, uh, what I think is valuable now is fundamentally different than what got me upset when I was 15. So as a society, as a whole, you know, a movie like this will challenge this idea. Like I, it would be interesting if 
we got someone young to sit, somehow sit through this. I, I somehow doubt they would <laughs> and see how they interpret this lunatic, right? And we also talked a little bit about that in, in, in the Losing Ground episode, but there is this idea of reevaluation that I keep coming back to. I think you might be a little bit anti-reevaluation, but um, I, I, there's this new book that just came out that I'm interested in reading about the life of Buster Keaton. And he is the, the best example of that. Not that he wasn't successful when he was uh, like in the 20s and 30s, but because of a bunch of different reasons, falls out of favor, is almost forgotten by the mid-1950s until the French rediscover some of his films and be like, no, he's great. Put on his films, has a second resurgence. And now if you look at like, film snobs a lot of times you'll see like his best films rated above like the best charlie chaplin films it's been this huge reverse over like the last 40 something years is that good is that bad i don't know but sometimes yeah it just takes a while for like genius or the things that really resonate with people a bunch of time before it gets reevaluated. like actually this is really good i don't know i yeah and this, these are just ambiguous arguments you know it's it's not like we're going to end up doing research on this you need a sociologist you need uh you need a film historian you need a like a bunch of different academics to come into a room and spend mm -hmm. 10 years analyzing this shit but you know the fundamental problem for me about this word uh, success is so in the buster keaton example does that mean he was successful? I, I don't know how to answer that question. Right, right, right. In this case, for this film, I mean, you'll talk about it, I'm sure. I, don't, I didn't actually look this up, but did this find an audience? Do people care about this movie? You know, in the context of the film itself, is Fitzcarraldo meant to be a success because he does accomplish what he's looking for? Or is he ultimately a fool because in doing so, he still ruined his life? I don't know, right? These are not meant to be answered so succinctly or so uh quickly yeah well i mean that's also the nature of art I, I can only answer for myself where i think it is a little bit conflicted at the end like i my personal feeling is that i look at him as someone who bites off way more than he can chew you said earlier in the film where his plan to like build that huge railroad over the mountains like stalled after 100 feet yeah <laughs> like yeah he tried and it's like oh this is too hard we're not gonna probably make this and even this journey, it's like, I can't fail this time too, but still does. Like, yeah, he, he, he surmounts this one major goal of getting over the mountain, but he ultimately does not get what he wants to get. So in one sense, so I think that, that that is like the weird seesaw is like, well, he got further than probably what anyone thought he was, but he still ultimately did not get what he wanted. I'd love for you to drown in a river. Before we move into our backstory, Dave, you often know how bizarre my brain works. Do you know the song Desperado? <laughs> First by the Eagles and then covered by Linda Ronstadt. Okay. There was an entire episode of Seinfeld devoted to it. Sure. Uh, I'm sure if, if I heard if it. you remember that episode. Okay, yeah. This is the song that I came up with uh, oh for God. this movie. All right, here we go. It's <laughs> becoming a theme. This is all I, could, I don't know why it was like, because Desperado has the same amount of syllables as Fitzcarraldo. No. So then there was just me like <laughs> playing it over and over in my brain. It's like, Fitzcarraldo. Why don't you come to your senses? You've been out making trenches for too long now. Anyways, that's as far as I got. Wow. And I expect my Grammy yeah. any moment. You know, we're on our way to an EGOT, right? If we don't mm -hmm. get a Grammy for this or the podcast by the time we die, uh, I'll be surprised. So if, if, if Miss Ronstadt wants to hit me up, I can do like a duet type of thing. <laughs> we're here. We're ready. You know. Offers on the table. <laughs> Um, all right, let's get into this backstory. So this movie opened up on March 5th, 1982 in West Germany. 
It is currently rated 4.1 over on Letterboxd. Wow. That's out of 5. And then an 8.1 over on IMDb. There is no rating available on Metacritic. But on Rotten Tomatoes, from 28 critics, it's at 79%. And from 10,000 plus users, it's at 92%. Ooh. Available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent this on iTunes or YouTube. Now, as far as like success goes... Honestly, I don't really know. I, I know people went and saw this. Its budget eventually was 14 million Deutschmarks. I don't know what that means, but that's that's what its budget was. It doesn't really have a detailed history of what it made in North America, but it seems to have been, been successful definitely in, in Germany. Uh, its plot description is... The story of Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, an extremely determined man who intends to build an opera house in the middle of a jungle. Now is the time of our episode where I get to uh, don my jigsaw mask. Gross. And let I think you should just Dave come up with a different a game. premise. Yeah, it's just gross. I mean, game shows, 82, there were game shows. I don't know what we're doing. All right, I'll put on my Alec Trebek mustache <laughs> and make Dave... Your category is... Question this is answer. What is this tagline? We, I make Dave guess what the actual tagline for this movie is. So, Dave, do you think it is... It doesn't have a tagline to... A journey of love into madness. Or three, his heart leads him into darkness. Uh, I'm going to go with A just because it's a German film, but it's a tough one. I hate you so much. Yes, it doesn't have a tagline. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought I would, I would screw you up because it basically is like the heart of darkness, this movie. So I thought maybe you would be succumbed to that, it, to that yeah. idea. All right, fine. Your prize is in the mail, even though we live in the same spot right now in this 1982 fiction that we have concocted. I mean, you could send it. It's cheap. Post is Whatever, just still it's two cheap. cents yeah, to send a package cents. in 1982. Right. Who cares? That's right. This movie stars Klaus Kinski as Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, Paul Hadisher as the captain, Jose Lugoy as Don Aquilino, and Claudia Cardinal as Molly. Anything you want to say about those actors? Well, we talked about Klaus... Klaus is insane. Mm -hmm. He was originally from Poland, conscripted into the Wehrmacht when he was 17 during World War II, but he was captured immediately on his first deployment, which I think is interesting. Mm. He wrote an autobiography in which he stated that he actually had defected from the Nazi regime, was captured by the Nazis, put into their own prisoner of war camp, escaped from that, and then was captured by Britain. And uh, Werner Herzog's like, you're full of shit. It turns out that a lot of the information about Klaus Kinski is from his own rec uh, his own account of his own life. And as yeah, we'll learn, okay. he's uh, been diagnosed with several mental disorders. So, a lot of this is pretty gray area. One thing I find interesting about him is him and Werner Herzog hate each other, but they made five movies together. So... I know. It's so wild. The other thing that was weird is he met Werner Herzog. He was uh, coming out of the World War II. He was uh, considered a very good actor. But whenever he would get into a theater troupe, he would get kicked out you know, pretty much immediately after because he's so crazy. Uh, and so at one point, he found himself essentially homeless and what kind of walking around. He was in a boarding house or rooming house. And uh, Werner Herzog was living there and he was only 13 because his parents were abjectly poor. And Werner's mm -hmm. got an anecdote that Kinski locked himself in their communal bathroom. Do you know how long for, Kyle? 48 hours. Jesus. <laughs> and he broke everything in the bathroom. 48 hours he spent in a communal bathroom breaking shit. That is commitment. It's <laughs> crazy. And he said, you will be an actor one day, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um... 
because he's, uh, I don't know, a good actor, but he's so intense and he's, you know, such a mm -hmm. magnetic presence um, when he's acting, he would start landing some big roles and uh, character sort of uh, pieces. And he did have a career, but uh, at some point he was in an insane asylum. He's married, somehow married three times. Each time I think his, uh, his marriage just broke up because he's too crazy. I mean, you keep saying crazy. I would say asshole but yes uh crazy meaning i mean he was diagnosed with uh, psychopathy and potentially schizophrenia i mean uh, he was literally kind of this lunatic that found an outlet through acting but in his personal life was probably actually trying to kill people and mm -hmm. his one of his daughters uh, sadly i think after he died published an autobiography that he was sexually abusing her as well so and then the second daughter came forward saying the same thing yes. yeah he's uh he's a pretty fucking terrible person and you can tell when you watch this film, as soon as he appears in it, you're like, there's something. I mean, he's unhinged. It's not an act. There's something wrong with well, this even guy. Like, he's the lead in Aguera too, right? The other Herzog movie that takes place in South America. And same thing. It's like, you are off your rocker from frame one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we kind of glossed over it. But even in the production of this film, he was so crazy. Uh, yeah. The native people offered legitimately to kill him on set because mm -hmm. he was like harming other people. So uh, there's a note that I think he was in Salem Assam because he stalked a theater producer and tried to strangle her to death. Jesus. Yeah. So that's uh, Mr. Kinski. Yeah. <laughs> great guy, great guy. Good guy, nice guy, upstanding citizen. Claudia is the only other, like she's a fairly famous um, Italian actress. Yes, well, she's Tunisian. But she okay. became famous in Italy. She's, oh man, she's got a pretty interesting life too. So she's most famous for the leopard in Eight and a Half. Mm -hmm. And she's gorgeous. And, you know, she did all this stuff. Uh, what's interesting about her, she was discovered very young after winning a beauty contest. So apparently she tried to do some acting, won this beauty contest. And this dude, uh, what's his name? Franco Cristaldi comes in and kind of uh, uh, signs her up for a long-term contract and brings her into Italy at the time. But she's secretly pregnant because she mm -hmm. had an affair with an unnamed Frenchman. So there's this controversy. It wasn't, because this, it wasn't Alain Delon, was it? No, because I think uh, they hadn't met yet. But so she's a kid. She's having this baby. It's 1950s. So that's really bad. This Frenchman is allegedly telling her to abort it and she won't. So in order to avoid scandal, I don't know if you read this, but Cristaldi no. decides, so she's made, you know, in, in film at this time, you make like five movies a year, right? It's not like current Hollywood where it takes, you know, three years of shooting. So she's actually made uh, films up to, she's seven months pregnant. People haven't noticed because, you know, she's young and too pretty and, you know, she can hide mm -hmm. it apparently. I don't understand. At one point, she's pregnant and they're like, we have to move, for your career to continue, we've got to hide you because you're gonna have this baby. And so Cristaldi makes up this story that she's gonna to go to England and study English. So she hides in London to have this child. And what he does is he creates a contract, you wanna talk about Brittany, for conservatorship. So he now controls her entire life. She cannot oh do God. anything without him signing off. So he does this in order to quote unquote, save her career. They end up marrying, so it's already creepy. They And then little Jack Nicholson vibes, because she's so young, the boy is raised by her parents in Tunisia, and the boy initially thinks that he's her sister. 
Oh boy. <laughs> uh, but all of this kind of opens up because finally a journalist, so she's making films and uh, this journalist eight years later uh, discovers the truth and it all comes out. And uh, this uh, Christelle guy adopts the boy into their marriage. But this carries on and she's traumatized by it because she's not in control of her image rights, her appearances, what movies she's allowed to be in. She can't do anything without this man <laughs> signing off on her. It's fucking weird, man. The other thing that was interesting is so she's this beautiful sex symbol. She's growing up, uh, sorry, uh, coming to uh, acting age in Italy, yeah. but she's overdubbed in everything she's in. They find right. that her voice is too husky and too sexy. So they actually have voice actors. <laughs> so she actually, the first time her real voice is used is in The Leopard and Eight and a Half, which is wow. interestingly when she's actually considered a true actress in a populist sense. My voice is also dubbed, but you probably can't notice. I also like the fact in this movie, like technically that character could have gone with him on the boat. And yeah. she was like, absolutely not. I am not doing this. <laughs> That's what it probably sounds like. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, her and this man eventually uh, dissolve their relationship because I guess they just grow tired of each other. And, and so he ends this contractual thing. But one of the things that happens as she's peaking with her career is America is now swooping into all these beautiful European actresses and trying to bring them into Hollywood, but signing these brutal contracts, right? Like was normal in Hollywood at the time. Uh, she refuses to sign any long-term contract with any Hollywood agency. So a lot of uh, European actresses talk about how this is very traumatizing. They would go into America and all of sudden they have to make these shitty films. Uh, so mm. she actually didn't have to go through that. And it's why I think she has less of an American career because she didn't like America, didn't like the movies and mm -hmm. ended up having a better career in Italy. And she became a pretty staunch advocate for female rights and gay rights and all this kind of stuff nice. uh, in her old age. So uh, pretty interesting lady. Well, cinematography is by a man named Thomas Mauch or Mach. The three Mauch. top films were would have been like this movie, Aguera, and The Kingdom of Naples were his Ooh. three big films. This, of course, was written and directed by Werner Herzog. So strap in, Dave. Uh, I'm going to try and make this as brief as I possibly can. But So Herzog hears about this real story that happened. Peruvian rubber baron Carlos Fairman Fitzcarrald in the 1890s wanted even more rubber. He was... A, he was this. He was horny for this stuff, Dave. He really <laughs> wanted this rubber. Bag it. You gotta keep it bagged up. So he concocted this plan similar to this movie, where he would move a ship between two rivers over land so that he could access this spot. The difference is that he did not just drag a huge thirty-ton ship over land. He did something I think maybe crazier, which is he disassembled the entire ship, got everyone to carry a piece of it to the next river and then reassembled the ship again. I don't think that's crazy. I think that's smarter, frankly. True, I know. Yeah. But it's just like, that's a wild thing to try and do. Anyways, he does <laughs> Especially that. Especially in the 19th century, yeah. Guy wasn't screwing around. So he loves this story, but he's also inspired by these things called standing stones. These are these huge rocks often found in Britain that have obviously been carried from a very far distance and then stood upright. So he wanted to play around with that image of a bunch of people pulling a huge object across land. He writes a script, and this is me, Kyle Marshall, editorializing, but it seems like it was also a bit of an adaptation of Don Quixote, because the original plan was to have the lead, Fitzcarraldo, and have his right-hand man, Wilbur, who's kind of an idiot, 
going on this same quest of going down the river, pulling their cross land. Pre-production to this movie starts in the late 1970s. He had come to South America a decade earlier to film his movie Aguera. He went to some of the same locations, but there was a difference this time. And I am being right up front. I am glossing over so much information. But essentially, there's some political battles going on between different countries. And there's outright wars happening between the different native tribes in the area. So he's coming into the middle of this. Pre-production gets started. And there's some very tense moments between the film crew and the local population, so much so that they have to actually flee the country and come back a year later. Like, it got pretty, pretty hairy. Initially, he casts Jason Robards as Fitzcarraldo, probably a better actor to fit the Irishman <laughs> of Fitzcarraldo, and Mick Jagger as Wilbur. If you watch the, the documentary, Burden of Dreams, you'll see them acting. They actually show a scene of the stuff that they had shot. And weirdly, this is, again, a little side note, it looks like the film quality is way better. So I don't know if he had to, like, degrade his stock or something like that when he eventually filmed this movie. But anyways, they start shooting this movie with those two actors. They finish 40% of the movie. They have almost half of this movie in the can. And then Robards gets extremely ill and needs to be flown out of the country. And his doctor forbids him from returning. Herzog is trying to make this deal so that he can come back, but then Mick Jagger has to drop out entirely so that he can go and record the new Rolling Stones album. And so with Mick gone, he's like, oh my God. So the whole thing falls apart. Robards isn't coming back. Mick Jagger is gone for sure. And he doesn't know what to do. So what eventually happens is that after another few months of like being there in the country, he calls on his old pal, Klaus Kinski, <laughs> to come over and bail him out. He rewrites the part. He gets rid of the Wilbur character completely. He says in the documentary, like, no one but Mick Jagger could play this part, so I, I'm going to get rid of this part entirely. So he does. Regardless, uh, an already tense shoot becomes even more tense because Kinski is like yelling at everyone and everything over the most trivial of manners. Herzog makes the, makes the decision to film the boat over land scene 1,500 miles away from where the rest of the movie is being shot. 1,500 miles for no real reason, because as people have stated, researchers, people even at the time, there was a location not that far away where they could have done the exact same thing. Anyways, they're in the middle of nowhere. They have to lug these three boats that he has bought to this location so that they can film. And to make matters worse, it's been unseasonably hot with no rain. So the boats are getting stuck. They can't do what they're trying to do. They're just waiting like week after week after week of not filming and trying to film other things in the meantime. The native people that they hire for the production, both as laborers and actors, are getting paid, for sure, a lot more than they normally would. They're getting paid twice the, the minimum wage at the time, but nowhere near what the Europeans are making on, on this movie. Uh, they're also unused to living together in large groups. Food is becoming an issue. Fights are starting to happen. And in the documentary, again, you can see the aftermath of, like, these spears to the leg and to the neck that happen with these outbreaks and skirmishes. At one point, the production actually has to hire a prostitute just to calm the men down. The uh, random two women uh, beside the chef. That's probably why they're in the film. This is where the claims of exploitation on the part of Herzog and his producers come from, especially when people started getting hurt from the boat on land scene. The engineer who came to help make that work with the ropes and the pulley system quit and walked off the set. You see that in the documentary, too. Because he basically says, listen, the way that you have to pull this up and the way that you have the people situated, if one thing breaks, you're killing a bunch of people. Like, there's just no way around it. It's going to pull everything down with it. So essentially, 
as I've kind of stated here already, the making of Fitzcarraldo becomes the story of a Fitzcarraldo character in Herzog and, uh, you know, what makes this kind of fascinating. But eventually they do make it. But the production is about five years from the late 70s up until the early 80s, which I think is why it kind of still feels like a late 70s film in some regards. It doesn't feel like an early 80s film, but that's a very brief history of what happened in the making of this film. Can I add one, one other injury that I read about? The one guy got bit by a venomous snake. Yeah, which is why they kill a snake to, on camera. Yeah, and they uh, decided to help him by cutting off his foot with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. A chainsaw. Well, I mean, where do you get scalpels in the middle of the jungle, Dave? <laughs> a chainsaw. <laughs> I always think about that. Like, there's there's certain surgeries uh, where they have to like use like a, a a drill or something through the skull, yeah. and like anytime you're using power tools, yeah, in like in, in surgery, it's like this feels weird. Let's talk about some of the native population here. I don't know how do you approach this, Dave? Like, I I don't know. I I feel super conflicted about the whole thing. Which is like, sure, they are paying them money it's not like they're doing this for free or anything or exposure or something like that getting paid more than they would normally yet simultaneously it's hard not to see like they're kind of being exploited for for their labor and their and their time one of the problems with the idea of wealth and currency is the relational value of things so mm-hmm. if like we went Helen and i went to part of our honeymoon if you want to call it that was in bali indonesia and we were at this like sort of private villas because they're like a hundred bucks a day and we get your own wow. little waiting pool and all this shit. Uh, maybe they're more, I don't know, Helen will correct me on the exact price, but it's it's incomparable to something, you know, if you want to stay in a place like that in North America, it would be thousands of dollars because, mm-hmm. you know, you're in this little thing by yourself. And when we asked the hotel for like to set us up on a tour, uh, the driver, we had a driver, right? So already <laughs> it's weird. Paid him $100 Canadian and he took us for a full day to every tourist trap location all around the island. We did the whole thing. What's interesting to think about is $100 seems like such a deal, but that is quite a lot of money if you can buy food for 30 cents, right? Right. They're still living in what we would consider to be poverty. How do you compare the two? I mean, we were just joking right. off mic about these fucking truckers and their entitlement, spoiled nature. The standard of living we expect and are entitled to in North America is unimaginable uh, to a culture that isn't, it doesn't even value having a yard and a car, right? right? These are not priorities for them. You bring a European or any production company down into an area like that, you can't actually put apples and apples together because they're not the same thing. So if I'm paying, you know, a German cameraman 40 bucks an hour, uh, presuming, and then we get a native laborer at 10 cents an hour, when you put the numbers on a spreadsheet, it sounds so awful. But it's, you know, these are things that are will require somebody much smarter and socially <laughs> conscious to actually come up with a number that's quote unquote fair. And um, well, luckily, Dave, still... I'm white, so I have, I'm the best person to step in here now and tell you what that is. There's still an exploitative thing and a colonial thing. We talk about this a lot, man. What, like, what is good representation? Like, should we just not shoot there? Uh, or do you have to go there and hire only local cinematographers mm-hmm. at the local rates? That in itself could be exploitative because, you know, if the director and the production company can make a movie for 120 million bucks, like it's a Marvel film, but then they decide to go shoot in Peru and they make the film for 5 million bucks and still make $2 billion on it, that's exploitation in and of itself. So right. uh, you also can't go in there and give people who uh, could subsist at a dollar a day 
you know, $50,000 a day, because then you create a huge inequality and inflation in that country too. So uh, these are not issues that, uh, it just doesn't make sense. All of it doesn't make sense. It's I, weird. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I, like the payment scale is is one thing. I would say to his credit, I think Herzog was trying to be as fair as he possibly could. He mentioned like, yes, I am, I am not paying them as much as I am the European crew, but I am paying them way more than anyone is paying them to do this job here same work. for the same work. So it's like, again, he, he feels justified. I think where I get a little bit more like critical of him is his seeming disregard for people's safety on the film set. Like, because you were actually lugging up this boat and they're like in mud and like the supports are breaking, the ropes are breaking. You even see it on, in the actual finished film, the boat was not supposed to snap and start sliding back into the river. That was a mistake. A, a line snapped and it keeps, it goes backwards. But people are getting hurt. People are getting, are dying in this. Like, I, I think at some point you have to like take a step back at that and be like, what are we doing? <laughs> Why are we like throwing people into like the, the jaws of death for this movie? You brought up earlier, you know, these so-called um, leaders of industry or whatever it is, right? You know, these people that change culture. Right. But all of them will do this, right? The idea yeah. of an auteur, we talked last year about Stanley Kubrick. We talk about, uh, what's that asshole? Sam Peckinpah. We talk about <laughs> all these people that are essentially abusive personalities. They're almost sociopathic in the way that they approach their work, but they finish the work they set out to do for better or for worse. And the films can be allotted you know, mm -hmm. uh, this commitment. I just saw an article questioning, you know, the impact of method acting. You know, the idea that an actor has to live uh, as an addict to portray an addict is uh, fundamentally damaging uh, mm -hmm. to that actor, right? Uh, you know, what will you do for the art? So, what we don't want to believe are required, particularly mm -hmm. in the PC woke culture. You know, we want everybody in a social, a idealistic social sense that everybody's equal and we have to be nice to everybody. But the reality of the world is it doesn't actually work that way. If we want to pay, right, uh, an indigenous farmer quote-unquote North American fair wage for their coffee beans, you're not paying six bucks and getting upset at a Phil and Sebastian's, you know? That's right. a $40 cup of coffee, right? Maybe more once we start paying shipping companies the correct wage for their labor. An iPhone would be a $15,000 phone if factory workers had to work at 40 bucks an hour, right? It's I, I don't know. I'm going to push back on that. I think people have done the math on that and it depends on what product you're talking about. Maybe the coffee. I don't know. I can't speak to that. I will say that for like when people talk about bringing like fast food workers and other people up to like quote unquote a living wage, the actual impact on the final product is if we're talking like a couple of cents is really all you would need well, to do. Well, that's to... talking about North American labor. But sure. what about production, right? What about right, production right, costs? Right, right. What about shipping costs? Like how are we building Chinese uh, they ship goods? They all the burgers from Brazil, Dave. So I'm I'm just saying, right? Like we go to Amazon and you get a, an iPhone yeah. case for five bucks that's manufactured in China and comes across the ocean and it's still $5. That mm -hmm. is, there is so much hidden money in there, that if we actually unraveled all of it, um, the global economy doesn't work. I don't want this to be in a defense of uh, rampant capitalism or anything like that. I just- You want people, you want more subjugation of people is what Dave is arguing. <laughs> well, I'm, all I'm arguing is that it's scarier than we think. Like I'm, I think I'm on the same level as you here. It's like there's give and take here. And this is where I'm conflicted. I wonder if that's why a lot of the films that are, get released today do feel Less bold, maybe, is the right word, or, or not as aggressive as 70s, 80s films do, because people were like, fuck it, who cares? I don't care if this guy dies. <laughs> We're just going to yeah. film this movie. But would 
a Marvel film looked like. It's like, no, we're actually going to have you swing across these buildings right. of Spider-Man with no safety net. Here, have fun. Grab the camera and be like, holy shit, what is going on? But then at the on the flip side of that, cool filmmaking, amazing uh, end product. But we killed five people to do this. Like <laughs> That's the thing, right? I'm pretty sure Andrew Garfield could do it. You brought up a different point earlier. I, maybe those movies just don't get made anymore. And, you know, mm. you've talked about how independent cinema and sort of avant-garde is disappearing. You know, it's not just the consumer side. There's a legal liability issue uh, sure, where yeah. if you can dump even five million bucks into something, but your lawyer says, well, we'll get sued for more than that. Never mind what your box office uh, potential is because you're going to hurt somebody, right? So we can't even start the project. I think this is partly why I enjoy the Mission Impossible movie so much. Because yeah. Tom Cruise is willing to be like, yeah, bring, take out that $10 million liability and I'll jump across this roof and break my leg. And I don't care because I'm Tom Cruise and I'm the producer of this movie anyways. Well, this I'm not is asking why, other people to do it. I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. I mean, this is why Jackie Chan is, I mean, mm -hmm. never mind him being a Communist Party uh, sure. uh, yeah. stalwart now. But this is why his movies are timeless because you're watching him actually get his face punched in um, by stunt doubles, uh, by the stuntmen. It's also why there's a demand now for current action stars to actually all do this too. And we're starting to see that more, right? Like Keanu Reeves has to learn gunmanship for John Wick and actual right. martial arts, right? Otherwise, nobody will watch the movies anymore because we've lost that sense where now we notice stuntmen and body doubles and uh, there is a push to go back the other way, but at what cost? I should probably introduce you to Steve. He has been my body double for the entirety of this podcast. So We're done here. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap this up here now. So Tangents, we might as well move yeah. into our next segment, which is Critics' Choice. Ooh. It's like a return to form here this week, Dave, because both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael did ah. go and see this movie. So we get to hear the return of Pauline I was Pauline starting to Kale. worry that Pauline Kael retired because we haven't yeah. heard from her in a while. Not, no, she, she made it into like... 91 or something like that something like that i can't remember all right this is what roger ebert said he loved this he gave it four of the four stars he i think added this into like his great movies list the movie is imperfect but transcendent the story could not have been filmed on this location in this way and been perfect without being less of a film the conclusion the scene with the cigar for example is an anticlimax but then everything must be an anticlimax after the boat goes up the hill what is crucial is that Herzog does not hurry his story along. He seeks not the progress of the plot, but the resonance of the images. Consider a sequence where the boat actually bangs and crashes its way through the deadly Pongo des Muertes, the rapids of death. Another director might have made this a routine action scene with quick cuts and lots of noise. Herzog makes it slow and frightful procession down real currents in a real ship with a phonograph playing Caruso until the needle is knocked loose. It looks more horrifying to see the huge ship slowly floating to its destiny. Um, what do you have to say about that, Dave? I don't know. Uh, it's Roger Ebert. So, you know, do you think he's right? <laughs> That's not true. I just like his writing style more than anything. That's why I always bring him up. I do agree with him in a way is that sometimes, oftentimes, imperfect movies are things that I latch on to. Because, like, yeah, mm. if this was made, quote, unquote, perfectly it would be almost a less of a film. I like that there's a little bit of a grittiness, uh, a raggedness to the image here a little bit. Because you're right, that boat that's floating down the rapids was, again, a mistake. It wasn't supposed to do that. But it's like, well, it's loose and it's floating down the river, so we might as well shoot it. So This film shows his love of documentarian you know, mm -hmm. approaches as well. So like sort of guerrilla filmmaking. So there's, uh, there's that. I think, like I said... I watched it. I didn't regret sitting through it like, <laughs> yes, Giorgio. 
Okay. But the problems with it are, are pretty apparent visually. Visually, oh, yeah. So. Here's what Pauline Kale says. Maybe you'll agree more with her. Oh, by the way, I should say she hated it. So <laughs> Fitzcarraldo is embarrassingly, infuriatingly real. The Indians tugging at Herzog's steamboat are workers trapped inside his misconception of a movie. We may be appalled by the labors that are evident in Fitzcarraldo. We may even be impressed by them. But we always see them as exactly what they are. Labors undertaken to be photographed. The story he has devised never takes hold. There isn't enough illusion for that. The plot seems no more than a pretext for the central image. At times, the ship slowly climbing the mountain does seem rather magical, but two hours and 37 minutes is a long sit, and the deliberateness of Herzog's pacing can put you in a stupor. A lot of other things happen, but that's all they do. They don't develop, and they're not followed through. Herzog has got himself into some zone between documentary and drama where neither work. It may be that his passion for authenticity is more religious than aesthetic, because he can't seem to make the images vivid. It's as if all his energy had gone into meeting the behind-the-scenes tests that he created for himself, his cast, and his crew, and probably his backers. Yeah, I love it. I, the only, I guess the only difference I would have, I think she's on the nose for everything, is that I didn't actually find it as difficult to watch uh, for whatever yeah. reason, but I think she's so... <laughs> She's so right about all of these and analytical aspects, you know? It, it, it's weird when you see like the two different reactions to that. It's like, I actually kind of agree with both of them. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not here to say like Fitzcarraldo is the greatest movie of all time. I, no. I liked it a great deal, but it, there is again, like those faults around the edges and I could see and understand her point of view of like, yeah, like there's no memorable images really, I don't think from this movie, the plot no. I'm going to remember that the, the, the boat being pulled up. Yeah. Like that, that, there's a central metaphor there that I, that I enjoy, but it is caught between both documentary and fiction film for me. Cause mm -hmm. that's how I had to keep watching it is like, yeah, this is a fiction quote unquote, but like I was constantly being pulled down and be like, but how, but those are real people probably making this yeah, like, yeah. what's going on there. And like, that looks like a mistake. And so there was all this stuff that was impacting that. That brings us to the question then that we always ask every week, Dave, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? I always don't know. I, I think that, uh, you know, for me in a populist sense, I always wonder whether uh, an audience could sit through this. And I think the answer is clearly no. If someone watched the documentary and wanted to see what the end product of the film was, you could probably uh, get enough out of this that's interesting, but it's a kind of a difficult film to enjoy. It starts off and you have to look at Klaus and wonder why you're going to give this maniac some time. And the biggest break of him trying to be Irish. And already that's kind of like, yeah. what the fuck's going on here? It was so funny to me. As soon as they say he's Irish, I'm like, Klaus Kinski is going to be Irish. There's no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I reject your premise, sir. There's no way this man is Irish. The metaphor around it, like you said, the metaphor and the story of, you know, doing this impossible task and it's very Sisyphean, like he actually accomplishes it, but it's actually really not for anything. That will stick with me. I mean, I'll, I'll remember it, but do I want to? Is it going to affect my worldview? So I'll probably go no and no, unfortunately. Um, I'm going to split it. I think it's a yes and no for me. I think it does hold up because I enjoyed watching this movie. I, I would say like maybe broadly speaking, sure, a modern audience would not watch it. But outside of the fiction we've created, Dave, we did go and watch the movie Mishima the other yeah. night. And uh, I don't know there's a crowd of 110 people there that were watching that movie. So. Yeah, but Mishima's good. Right. It was shot really well. Uh, sure. And and we talked about this last night or uh, whenever, depending on when this is released. If that nice gentleman had not given us the backstory, 
we mm. would not have understood what the fuck was going on sure. even at the end of that film. So I suspect that uh, like this, if we, if I were, I mean, you do this more than I do, but if uh, I were, was one to watch a making of film before watching said film, uh, of course, everything seems more important because you right. load it with the idea of how hard it was to do, but I don't know. That's not what I care about when I watch a movie. Otherwise, every movie would be good. How hard is no, it to make a, a movie? That's, that's not true. It's hard to make a movie, Dave. That's what it, <laughs> it's always no, hard that's what to I make mean, a movie. Though. Like, it, it, you take the shit, like, if you look at Yes, Giorgio, and then they do the backstory, right? Like, we, uh, I didn't do the backstory because I was upset at the sure, film. Sure, but, but like, you know, that doesn't like, make that movie better when you hear the no, backstory but of you, Yes, Giorgio. No, but you start seeing, like, Pavarotti actually had a nodule in his throat. I didn't know that. And he actually mm. had a similar experience. Does that make that scene more resonant? Maybe, right? As stupid as that movie is, maybe you're like, oh, well, maybe he's drawing on the fact this actually happened to him. And it was psychosomatic. It's weird right hmm. it's uh I, I that's why i don't do it <laughs> well I, okay okay well we, we can move on i'm just saying that i didn't do any of the backstory until after i watched the movie so my <laughs> my no. reactions were to the movie first and foremost all right um, all right as far as at the time it did win the german film prize for best feature film herzog won best director at the 1982 Cannes film festival that year i'm sure you're you're so curious then dave what won the palm d'Or that year well it was a tie one of the few ties in the festival's history where Missing, the movie Missing, and a movie called Yol, Y-O-L, a Russian film, tied for uh, best film that year. Mm. Mm. It did not make the shortlist for the Oscars for best foreign language film. There's a documentary, Burden of Dreams. Herzog's personal diaries from the production were published in 2009. So mm. you can go and get a copy of Conquest of the Useless if you want to <laughs> read up about the making of this film in the book form. Are you a fan of the band The Frames at all, Dave? No. no. Okay. Well, their second studio album, released in 1995, is called Fitzcarraldo. And there's a song called Fitzcarraldo. So they're <laughs> keeping it alive. It is in reference to this film. Glenn Hansard, by the way, is one of the lead singers of The Frames and went on to make one of my favorite movies called Once. So there's a little bit of a backstory I'm there. Really, I mean, he's not young in Once, but I forgot... That he had a career before or after that film. Yeah. It's a great singer. Yeah, very good. And then, of course, we've talked about the allusions to this film and such things as The Simpsons, The Venture Brothers, and by Anthony Bourdain in his series No Reservations. So mm. it's been brought up a few times. But, uh, Dave, we do need to rate this film. That's what we need to do. But before we do, that's what Dave and I thought about the movie Fitzcarraldo. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel, and it matches the movie that we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini-review of the film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in our show notes to this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So, yeah, let's get to the rating of this movie, Dave. Out of five, what would you rate this? I think I'm going to go with a three. Kind of like when you're reading the critics review I, I keep flipping between the two one thing i'm thinking about right now is how much of this is colored by our discussion and whether i actually felt bored while watching it and i don't remember <laughs> 
I will be so, the first one to admit, because this is nearly three hours, I did split this up into two viewings. So yes. I will be the first one to admit that. Yeah. Uh, but that's also because I started watching this at like 10 o'clock one night. I was like, I'm not going to make this. <laughs> that's, well, that's the thing. It's not that gripping, right? There are movies, if you start, even at there, 10. There's parts that are gripping, I would say. Uh, well, but that, you're right. It's not, it's not yeah. one that like, yeah, it, I have to see the, what, what happens here. Yeah, yeah. I think I was much more compelled by this movie. I can tell by my my rating because I'm giving it a four. I wow. really enjoyed this movie. I, I liked it a lot. It's, again, not getting into that upper echelon like of greatest films or some of my favorite films of all time. Aguirre, I think, is a better made movie than what this movie is. But I felt uh, I felt pretty good by the end of it. And it was like, I finally, a movie about opera that wasn't complete shit. So that's nice. <laughs> it wasn't even about opera, but sure. The opera was sure, utilized sure. in it as a yeah, constructive vehicle. I will say that that does mean that it's going to average to a 3.5. That's what the rating will be looked at on that's Letterboxd. Right now, again, we've only reviewed three films in 1982, but it's currently our number one film of uh-huh. 1982. That's your fault. Yeah. There's going to be other movies, Dave, <laughs> that come out. <laughs> I, but I'll right. be interested to see, does this make our top 10 by the end of the year? No. I would say no, probably, no. but we'll see. We're, we're going to have some heavy bias. Yeah, you're going to be heavily biased to uh, Friday the 13th Part 3. So I just know you're going <laughs> well, to love just saying, that movie. Looking ahead, I mean, there are some bangers this year. We're, you know what we're going to mm-hmm. have a problem with is uh, that top 10 is going to... There's going to be a lot of ties. I think there's going to be a lot of four and a halfs and fives. I think there's going to be some... I, I Honestly, this year out of... Any of the years we've covered, I anticipate there's going to be some fights about how films get like mm, <laughs> this is going above or below this film. Yeah, maybe. I have a lot of nostalgia for some of these titles, so we'll see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to rate everything a one from now on out, just to make it's you impossible mad, so. for you. You're too apologist. Yeah, Blade Runner one, one is a three. <laughs> your one, your one is a three. Uh, I- <laughs> All right. All right. You don't have to call me out. Let's see what we're reviewing here next week, Dave. Okay, well, we're, we're sticking in the kind of like the, the music realm here, because next week we're going to be watching the very avant-garde film, Pink Floyd, The Wall. Mm, nice. Do you like Pink Floyd? Are you a Pink Floyd fan? Uh, I don't know. I, when I, yeah, sure. <laughs> as far as I can understand, I, I, I've never watched this movie, but it's not really, I mean, there's a narrative, but it's a very loose, it's very... Yeah, a music video. <laughs> Weird we'll uh, for 90 minutes. Uh, but that's what we're going to be watching next week. And um, gosh, not a single person yet has come into our, oh, we should probably turn on the open sign. That way mm. they know. Is that, was it like a flip card in the yeah, A's? It's a, yeah, let's just flip it over. Right. Um, actually, let's go for lunch first. Let me flip this back. <laughs> let's go for lunch. My voice is also dubbed, but you probably can't notice.